Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. back to this week's episode of This Must Be The Gig. I am your host, Leo Phillips, and we are proudly presented by Vivid Seats. So if you've just tuned in, are a first-time caller or no-time listener, our goal every week is really to document the musical moments that changed an artist's life. So whether that's their first performance or seeing their idol in person or an absolute train wreck of a show that they'd rather forget, we want them to remember it. It's, you know, we're monsters. And really, also, the concept of an artist doesn't stop at a musician. In the weeks to come, we will dive into the world of live music and hear stories from festival founders and set designers and everybody in between. We're essentially your backstage pass to the world of live music, and we are going to draw the curtains and dig out the guts and look at them and... <laughs> <laughs> and in the studio is uh, engineer and producer Adam Kibble. Hey, how are you this week? Hey, you sound really excited. I am really excited. It is just about summer, festival season, basically in full swing. It's really hot in this little room as well in our studio. That also might oh. be where this manic energy is coming from. Yeah. I feel like the weather is bringing out the best in us, though. Gotta focus on the good. That's yeah. all there is. <laughs> exactly. And uh, also, the good. Speaking of the good, I spoke with the one and only Eleanor Friedberger. And since her early 2000s time as the Fiery Furnaces with brother Matthew, Eleanor's been a constant presence of indelible specificity and swooning emotionalism. I'm really excited about this one. I was such a massive fan of the Fiery Furnaces back in the day. I know. And you also did that incredible track by track with her a while back. Oh, yeah. If you haven't Not listened to that. Back. Head over to Consequence Podcast Network for the Consequence of Sound podcast. Uh, go through this album in more detail, but I believe this is a much better conversation, so listen to this one. <laughs> you have to say that. And that brings us to Eleanor's. <laughs> it doesn't actually. <laughs> but to talk about Eleanor's lyrics quickly, I'm sorry about that segue, but really I found in that chat as well is how fascinating her lyrics are. And in the past, they've really ranged from surreal tales of 
blueberry boats and bitter teas to kind of diaristic tales of love and of loss, which you know we love all the loss and the love. Eleanor now is four records into her stunning solo career and she is just continuing to delight us all. She has a brand new album called Rebound. And it's only been out a few weeks, but yeah. I've already seen a lot of people talking end of year list. I hate end of year list. It's, can we, if they come as can we su- burn January them? 2nd, you got to start talking about it and you cannot stop. You know what we should do is put the end of year list into the sauna of a room and leave it here. Too tie. <laughs> Rebound is influenced by a recent trip that she took to Greece and Eleanor really pushes into kind of a dingy disco vibe on her title track Rebound and this beautiful mythic symbolism on that stunning electropop jam In Between Stars. Do you remember the song Everything? Oh, do I? I, I cannot get that hook out of I my know. head. It's a really fascinating chat. As you can hear, we are high as hell on heat. We're hot, hot heat. Where did that band go? I wonder. I want that band back. It's a fascinating chat. Eleanor's beautiful voice is as powerful and magnetic in conversation as it is on her record. And we we dish on the highs and lows of obviously touring the world with your family, your older brother, like she did. And the reaction that you get when you see the crowd passing around a cardboard cutout of yourself. And also the empowering process behind Rebound. It is such... A beautiful record. It's truly, truly inspiring. And I really urge you to head on over to eleanorfriedberger.com and buy yourself a copy. Tell them Lior sent you. Yeah. Don't, I don't have a promo code for you because you got to pay full price. Promo code full price. Yeah, full price. So you can also follow her on social media at Eleanor only. You can go there, keep up with her world tour. And if you have seen her somewhere in a city near you... Let us know if you have seen her already or if you go, if you have tickets, take a photo of those tickets, send it to us. Take a photo of yourself with those tickets, send it to us. Take a photo of your mom with those tickets and send it to us. But make sure you cover up the barcode. You don't want somebody to try to make a photocopy of a picture of a ticket and then sneak in and study you. Okay, listen to Adam. Don't send me a photo. No, send the photo. Just cover the barcode. Okay, just cover the barcode. Don't send me a photo of your ticket. That was silly of me to ask you. Just send me a photo of your face pretending to be your ticket. I like that. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Pretending for a human face. Wait, do you want to see my my version of being a ticket? Yes, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Thankfully, this is podcasting. Go follow her and buy her album because I have it and be like me. I just want you to have it in your life, and I think that it will be in your life for a very long time. And so enjoy us in this conversation together about Eleanor's life and touring. Goodbye. Oak Park is the last stop on the um, CTA. Oh, yes. Yes. It was like a perfect mix of urban and suburban. So I could <laughs> yeah. take the train downtown and walk to record stores and all that kind of stuff. Did you experience your first concert then in Chicago or did you travel yeah. with your mates? Where Where was it? Well, the first concert I went to was at the Rosemont Horizon, which mm-hmm. is a 
it uh, it probably has a capacity of like 15,000, something like that. It's an arena, basically, small arena. And it's out by O'Hare Airport. So it's a place that you would always pass, at least I would pass, like going to the airport. And it was probably, Rosemont Horizon, you might want to look it up. I mean, it was probably built to. like built in the late 70s, early 80s or something like that. Um, I haven't been back since I was 14 or 15. So God knows what it looks like. Oh, wow. Okay. I am Googling it right now. And there's one of those like monster truck derbies. A picture yeah, of that. it was very much like that. I mean, my first <gasps> concert was, I mean, it's funny. Now that I'm thinking about this, the first concert I went to, I, it was um, 80, 1989, I think. Mm -hmm. It was Robert Plant. Uh, my favorite band at the time was Led Zeppelin. I mean, up until that point when I was 13, I only listened to like classic rock. I didn't listen to contemporary music at all. Wow. And Led Zeppelin was my absolute favorite band. And Robert Plant was on tour for whatever solo album he was promoting. And it was the first tour he was going to be playing Led Zeppelin songs again. Oh, my and gosh. The Black Crows were the opening act. Um, and I went with uh, my friend, my best friend and two other girlfriends and my best friend's dad took us. And he was kind of like our link to the past, you know, mm -hmm. like he was still kind of living in the 60s and 70s a little bit. Like his first name was Roy, but no one called him that. His nickname was Bud, which at the time I didn't realize that was like a weed reference, you know, um, Anyway, he took us and we went, we had the worst, cheapest seats up in the balcony, like nosebleed seats. But for some reason, my best friend, Lisa, she bought a Robert Plant t-shirt immediately and put it on over her clothes. <laughs> and I, I would only guess it was like a promoter's rep or somebody. I don't even know who would do this now, but somebody came up to us and said, you just bought a Robert Plant t-shirt, and now you get to sit in the second row. No. What? Yeah. And How? so he, he let us crazy. down. Like, I know, four 13-year-old girls, <laughs> and let us down to the second row. And we were just like this. I remember this woman who was sitting there already. was She could have been... 17 or 25 or 45 I have no idea how old she was but she said you know you've got to stand on your chairs so you can make eye contact with him so he'll look <laughs> oh at God. you and we're like we don't want him to look we, at you. we, we don't like, want that weird lady thank you yeah, though <laughs> but but we we did it and I and I remember so clearly like this moment he sang the song going to California, like this Led Zeppelin song and you know making eye contact with Robert Plant and so funny oh my gosh and especially the old just even buying a t-shirt and putting it over your clothes like I have been to yeah. concerts recently where I've seen young girls like people still and young boys people still do that they t they get so excited that they yeah. forget how clothing works they're like oh you put this other piece of clothing over my original outfit but why did you navigate towards like 70s classic rock was that playing in your house or well in Chicago at the time you know I grew up late 80s when I started really being into music when I was like junior high age or I I I would say I mean at the time like it was very heavily formatted radio which is what I listened to so there was the classic rock station there was the oldie station there would be like the pop top 40 stations which I wasn't really that into at the time because it was like 
Madonna and Michael Jackson or what. I mean, I liked it fine, but it just wasn't what I really felt connected to. And I would say like, because when I was around 10 or so, like there was this big trend in movies, like the movie uh, Stand By Me came out yes. and okay. Dirty, Dirty yeah. Dancing and La Bamba. And it was all these like 1950s mm-hmm. stories. That, and I really got into the music. And I listened, I think in Chicago, there were two oldies stations. So like, I just listened to that music. And then my mom would listen to the Rolling Stones and Elton John and the Beatles and stuff like that. But that's just what I liked. And then I was just really lucky because when I was 15, you know, in 1991 is when Nirvana hit. Mm. And I was like, completely got swept up into that. I think after Robert Plant, the next big concert I went to was to see In Excess. Oh, amazing. I've seen them as well. <laughs> Incredible. It was funny because the same kind of, I remember watching, I had better seats that time and like <laughs> seeing a similar sort of thing where these promoter reps would come out. And I remember seeing them actually pulling like hot girls out of the audience, like to take uh... back yeah, I swear. Yeah, so wild. Do you think that that still happens? Because obviously, uh, neither of us are young 14-year-old girls. I remember it happening to a bunch of my friends also at Robbie Williams' concert back uh-huh. in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like known as quite a sleazy, slick, kind of greasy dude. Um, so I would kind of expect it to happen. And, I, you know, you see it in the movies and you hear those stories. Yeah, I haven't seen that happen. But I mean, of course, I've been now on the other side and much older. And over the years, like being in dressing rooms, I've certainly seen like, women who don't belong there. (laughs) Even in like the smallest sort of pathetic indie, indiest of indie rock clubs, you'll you will see people hanging around. But I don't think it's like the club or the promoter pulling them back, you know. Do you try and signal them like something about this doesn't sit right? Thankfully, you were with your friends. But if you're an impressionable young person, irrespective of your gender, I can't imagine that being healthy to any extent. No. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when I said the thing about the Robert Plant story, we were so young that we weren't appealing to anybody. You know what I mean? Like we were like preteen almost. So I don't think it was, I can't imagine that it was for what the reasons that you're saying, you know, but Mm. I I have no idea. I don't Mm. know. We just like, we just are grateful, I suppose, that nothing happened. And this is the best story that you and yeah. your friends got put in the front row. Yeah, it felt it felt fairly innocent. But mm. like I said, when I was a little bit older and saw like this in excess, and that felt weird. I mean, we I wasn't chosen, you know, I was not sexy when I was 14 I I don't think but I mean these were like older people being pulled back yeah I'm having flashbacks of me at 14 with outfits just didn't fit and they hang on me and braces and yeah I mean girls who are 14 now certainly don't look like how we did you know back in the day no fast forwarding even a couple years after Mm. that back to the same venue the same rose on horizon it's so funny I went to I had tickets to see Guns N' Roses Ooh, during the okay. um, Use Your Illusion tour when they were like notorious for canceling or starting three hours late or whatever. And my mom was out of town. And so we had like the pre preliminary party at my house. Mm-hmm. 
which involved, you know, drinking beer and smoking pot. And then somebody drove and, and on our way to Rosemont Horizon, which was only a 20 minute drive, they announced on the radio that they had canceled the show. No. For some reason, I was like a little bit drunk or stoned enough to get really emotional and started <laughs> crying, crying. And I remember going to the stopping at a McDonald's to use the bathroom and it was just filled with people on their way to this concert. And like the women, if you can imagine, like with the huge hair mm. and everyone, like we go into the ladies room at McDonald's and people are like doing their makeup and I was crying. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's fitting to be crying in the bathrooms of a McDonald's for a Guns N' Roses concert. Did you ever get to see them again? Did they ever reschedule? They didn't reschedule that time. We must have gotten our money back. But I saw them yeah. ye- years and years later when Axl Rose was doing like a oh. almost like a cover band. This was like seven years ago, something mm. like that. And they played in this tiny venue in New York called the Hero Ballroom, which even I, I had played at once before. It was like under in the basement of a hotel in Chelsea. Wow. And it probably holds like 400 people. And somehow I got to be on like the guest list for that show. So it was amazing. What, I'm sure to see it then. I, I can't even, your younger self must have just been like, you see those tears, they were worth it. I saw yeah. them in the end. I mean, it wasn't the whole band, but, yes, you know. It was something. It was something. Yeah. Is there one concert that sticks out in your mind as the best festival or concert you've ever seen? Oh, I've had so many good experiences. It's so hard to narrow it down to one. I feel so lucky that I've had. And I don't mean just like those kind of, you know, getting to see Iggy Pop and the Stooges mm. at a festival in Australia. And I'm on the side of the stage and Iggy's like beside me, you know, like yeah, that, that kind of thing is obviously happens because I was in a special position, you know, yes. he's such a great performer. So I feel like, I mean, that's easy to to think of him again, but I saw him when I was only 18. He was playing in the street at, in Austin, like, and it was before he kind of really made a big, I mean, he never had to make a comeback, but before mm-hmm. he was kind of cool again, it was probably 1994. And there weren't that many people there, you know, and I just like went with my brother who I was later in a band with. And anytime he and I like went to see shows together, which wasn't that often, it was really exciting. We would get excited and laugh like in, about the same moments that we saw on stage. And anytime I saw a show with my brother when I was younger was really special. But- That's transformative. I mean, having such a huge character just playing out on the street. When I shot him at, I think it was in Helsinki, he jumped from the stage and then he like spat at all the photographers, spat at the front row. And I was just like, yes, this is amazing. You want to feel that rawness and that energy, you know, it was palpable. That's a rock star, you know, that's a superstar. I mean, the one thing that really sticks out about the time when I saw him with my brother was we were standing beside these two men who were a couple and they were enjoying the show as much as my brother and I were. And I remember the one guy really wanted to stage dive and it was like, maybe he had never done it before. I don't know, but it was so adorable, like watching the one guy encouraging his partner (laughs) for like maybe half the set and finally he did it and he got up and he climbed and he climbed up and I don't even know how he did it but like watching that whole exchange and then seeing him do it and seeing like the pride in his boyfriend's eyes like Mm -hmm. as he did it was so (laughs) 
awesome. I love watching people watching shows. It's so yeah. creepy, I know, but there's something so you have your own experience by doing so. And just to see the like light shining on their faces. And especially you could see that from stage because you, you live that other life as well. Right. Yeah. A very beautiful life where you get to perform for people. Has there been really a weird experience that you've had whilst performing? Like, have you seen anything strange or even recognized a familiar face? Have one of your idols watched you perform before? How is that viewpoint? Yeah. Me? <laughs> uh, I mean, a few things come straight to mind. One time I played at the Bowery Ballroom in New York. I mean, I've played there many times, but one time when my band Fiery Furnaces played there, I remember just there's a there's a small balcony there that where not a lot of people can stand or sit. And, and normally I don't look around too much, you know. Because I think that that's kind of distracting. You know, obviously mm. it's a little exciting. But at, at one point I just glanced up to the balcony and right at the edge of the balcony was Lou Reed. What? And I was just no. like, <laughs> I just like immediately like darted my eyes back and just thought like, okay, don't look back up there. Don't look back up there. Don't look back <laughs> I mean, how did you stay? Sta like, I don't know. I'm sure you were in it. but And your body was, was it just, were you just singing and your yeah. mind was somewhere else and your body was moving still and gosh. I just thought okay don't look back to that. <laughs> whatever you do I don't know there have been so many I mean this is such a tough interview because I could talk about this for I for know a week, I you know, know. I, mean, I have so many stories but uh especially with, I mean I've been touring full-time for 15 years it's just like especially oh. with fiery furnaces as well you guys toured for three consecutive years the time that I remember being where I felt kind of angry was mm -hmm. like I'd done a campaign for um Converse shoes where they had used all these musicians and they'd kind of turned us into like paper dolls standing together. Okay. Um, and it was fine. Yeah. Whatever. We played at Bonnaroo, the festival, and Converse, I guess, was there like promoting this campaign and they had made life-size cutouts of me, like cardboard oh cutouts from this campaign and they had thrown them out into the audience while we were playing. So Wait. I'm standing there on stage playing and there's these life-size cardboard cutouts that they're like, the audience is passing them around and like just manhandling, ripping apart eventually. And that's what I was watching. Oh my gosh. And you were watching just your head and arms like failing. That was disconcerting. That was not fun. That was not cool. I'm sure that for you, the beauty of performing as well, because you've been doing it for so long, is that there's a part of you that switches off. Yeah. It's your creativity sure. and your persona exactly so if you are like asked involuntary to start looking at yourself bopping around in the crowd I can't even imagine that would have thrown me off completely they were just tossing tossing them around as if I was like um crowd surfing you know <laughs> but just yeah. passing them around and then like as if they're beach balls or something it was just really it was awful what about the first time you ever performed then? Was that with your brother in Fiery Furnaces or did you perform with any other project before that? Well, the very first time I performed in front of people was in Stockholm, Sweden. I, I'd lived in London for one year before I moved to New York and I made some really good friends who are Swedish and mm -hmm. went to visit them. And one of them just forced me to do it, you know, which I'm so grateful for. It was just like a like a weekly party at a at a bar and just I played probably four or five songs. 
songs. And then I started playing with a friend who I'd gone to college with in New York just before my brother moved to New York. So I just played a handful of times with another friend, not in a very like official capacity, mm. just loft parties and maybe one bar. And then when you obviously had a little bit more experience and you were performing more, did you feel like you had to kind of stop and be like, how do I do this? Who am I going to be? How did you make those creative choices in terms of how you were going to perform? Luckily, because everything happened relatively quickly in terms of like from playing just in bars to then actually putting out records, it all happened in a couple of years. Like, Mm. I didn't stop to think about it too much, to be honest. For a while, I was a little bit embarrassed. I'd wear like a baseball hat pulled down low over my eyes. And yeah, I mean, I was still very much a tomboy and I had no interest in wearing like a costume or maybe I was wearing a costume because I was dressing so tomboyish and I felt more comfortable like in a masculine sort of role. Also because I was playing with my brother and he's, I wanted to just kind of match up with him. Because it was my brother, we never, you know, I always used to say like being in a rock band should feel like you're in a street gang. (laughs) Or you're with your best mates or whatever. So you're like wearing matching jackets or something. But because I was in a band with my brother, it always felt like, you know, taking photos. It was like taking a family photo. (laughs) It wasn't like, didn't have that cool factor. I mean, you look pretty cool. Come on. But I know that that's not, doesn't matter because it's not how you felt. It's not how I felt. And it also, it helped me, I think. And I hope people recognize it and identify that we were just being ourselves. There was no sort of artifice or like persona, which is, you know, to a fault sometimes. But I think that we were really just being ourselves. How was the actual touring though with your brother? Because I know that family, there is a certain sense where people become family. So there's certain aspects of a person, you know, they can get so close that it could be blood. But when it really is family, there's this level of ease and trust and loyalty without even having to experience or speak about anything. Was it comfy straight away? Yeah, I mean, it cuts it cuts both ways. So everything you said is correct, like having someone you totally trust, someone you have this like shorthand language with, and you trust them, like, oh, what if the van breaks down I've got someone else to help me take care of that that sort of practical stuff is really useful you know like oh oh I don't want to share with the drummer I'll share a room with my brother you know (laughs) but you know fucking hell I gotta share a room with my brother you know exactly it's it's terrible and like oh I'm in my you know my mid to late 20s and I should be like living up the time of my life or whatever But I've got my older brother standing over my shoulder to watch me like a hawk. And same for him. He's got his little sister in tow and I'm like judging everything that he does. And, you know, it's just so it, it, it went both ways. It was the best and the worst. Obviously, we made it work. I think if we had been a little bit more successful and we were and we had the capacity like to tour more extravagantly, like in a tour bus, for instance, like. I think we it would have been a lot more helpful for us to keep going. Obviously, a lot of things come up when you are with somebody 24 hours a day, irrespective of whether they're blood or not. So did that affect how you wrote as well? Did you always feel comfy speaking your mind? I think that's really what I'm wondering about. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> 
I mean, I mean, yes and no. Like a lot of reasons why bands break up, I think, is because they bottle up every resentment, mm -hmm. and then one day they snap and they say "fuck you" or whatever, and that's unacceptable, you know, for some people. But for my brother and I, um, on the one hand, we were able to say "fuck you," you know, every day or the equivalent of that like stop chewing so loudly or what, you know, whatever, anything. And we could just say, say it immediately. And then we'd be mad for a minute, but then it would slide off our backs. But at the same time, sure, like any relationship, I mean, there are some things that you just can't address, especially, you know, I'm dealing with someone who's an older brother, who's frankly, you know, quite uh, aggressive and dominating in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So for me, it wasn't always that easy. He was the authority. Which is really sometimes, because the only way that I can relate is literally with the same situation of having an older brother who I'm like utterly close to. He's my bestest friend. But there is that level of you always know your place, irrespective of whether you work with the person or not. Yours is obviously so heightened and so amplified. But even just having that relationship grow over time is one thing. You know, you were also growing up together and on the road. In, and that's not something that a lot of people get to do. But I can also imagine that you grow faster because you have that comfort of knowing that somebody's watching your back. Right. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think it wasn't sustainable, although we did it for quite a long time. I think you're right. I mean, the growing, we, we did so many different things in a fairly short amount of time from like 2000 and three to 2010 is when we were really active and we experimented so much and we made so many different kinds of records. And maybe you're right. Maybe that experience of being together on the road and having that trust allowed us to be that, that creative. You know, I, I don't know, but that's a good guess. Irrespective of whether that was, you know, the best thing that happened to you. <laughs> I certainly think it's affected who you are now. Oh, for sure. It seems kind of hard to believe that I've been doing like my solo stuff yes. since 2011. So going on seven years, which is almost as long as all of that stuff I did with my brother, which is crazy. That much time is already passed. Yeah. But, but um, on the one hand, I have such a different perspective and I feel like, oh, I finally know what I'm doing. You know, and on the other hand, I'm just like every night I go on stage and I kind of feel like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I feel a little bit of that, tiny bit of that. I know what's going to happen, but and yeah. I feel I feel pretty confident most most nights. But at the same time, there's this tiny little bit piece mm -hmm. of me, which I'm sure any musician would agree, unless they suffer from horrible stage fright, which luckily I, I don't. But you know, this is this feeling that you're like. I don't know what's going to happen, you know. It was just thrilling as well. Like that's totally. an adrenaline rush in itself yeah. because that's a situation that you can only control up to a certain point. Like you yeah. know your lyrics, you know your heart, you know your ability, and then anything can happen, which is why obviously fans love that. It's the best thing. I mean, I don't know. Especially I've been doing a lot of um, switching between playing alone, doing like yes. totally solo shows, and then also playing with a band. And getting getting to do both of those is really exciting because it's just two completely different animals. Playing by myself, it's almost like I'm doing 
like performance art or stand-up comedy or something. It's not, I don't even think of it as being musical. It's this like physical intellectual act for me that is just something else, you know. It's Performing solo versus with a band, there's so much duality in terms of also you could take the type of instrumentals that you're using now. The, the tone is different and not yeah. different as in miles apart. It's still you but it's noticeably different from your last record. So have you been able to have like a test run of some of the new stuff? Playing the songs, just me on guitar and singing is one thing. But I also, I kind of had this fantasy about doing like a whole set karaoke style and just singing along to the backing track. So I do that a little bit, like a few songs that way, which is fun. It's fun to put down the guitar and just same there's something to be said for artists who have that specific aesthetic like you have had and you still do you get this chance at every point really before the beginning of any new album to kind of unearth this different feeling and then there's also something really valuable about just really throwing everything you've done before throwing that away out the window and then experimenting it's such a beautiful way to also respect some of these songs do you feel like this is the type of record where you could really change your perspective on things and change the way you approached it? I'm always kind of just reacting to the last thing. So the last album I made, I wanted to do something with the band that I'd been touring with. I had moved to upstate New York and met someone with like a really small studio in their barn and he recorded just on analog equipment and I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't done that in years and years and you know I did something that a lot of traditional bands do you know like I wrote the songs I arranged the songs with my my band we played a bunch of shows and tried out the songs live and then we went and recorded them like in one room together, live to tape, you know, mm. and I, I had never done that before. So it was a great experience. And then we went on tour and, you know, and then I thought, oh my gosh, I never need to do that ever again. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I was yeah. really going for this. Yeah, I was going for like the ultimate, for me, like my idea of what a singer songwriter, yes. like 70s style. Borrowing a way in the cabin. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But this time around, I just was like, how can I do the opposite? Okay, okay. And especially, I'd been touring like that whole year, basically, and it ended with the election. And and I just wanted to get out of this country. (laughs) And uh, I, I went to a place that was very inspiring to me. And also, I mean, the music scene in Athens is not very rock and rolly. It's much more of like a electronic music scene is and I'm friends with some DJs there and stuff and I I was just like exposed myself to a to a slightly different world although I you know I knew I couldn't go so extreme in that direction that doesn't really interest me but but I knew that I could make an album with drum machines and synthesizers and record it mostly myself you know I was I was just kind of pushing myself to see how much I could do on my own I love the fact that your surroundings rubbed off on you. I don't think anyone expects that to happen, but when it does, I think it's a really beautiful moment. From touring, I assume, but also just, I don't know, it's the chicken or the egg sort of thing. It's like now I really thrive on movement and traveling and new Mm. places and getting to know new places. Like 
I'm a little bit addicted to it, I think. Yeah, I'm not one of these people that like, oh, I wish I could just stay home and <laughs> just be at home and I'll do all my writing at home. And, I'll, you know, like, I mean, that sounds kind of nice, but it's just that's not for me. I really I really thrive on the adrenaline, too. I mean, the adrenaline that we're talking about, like that happens like before and during and after sh- performances like yes that I don't know if that's like a symptom of getting older or something I just I feel it so much more now or at least mm. more than I can remember I, I I don't know what 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 was happening when I was younger really but like physiologically I actually like feel that adrenaline and it used to be a thing where I would always get sick on tour um but now wow. but now like I never get sick on tour because I've got this like adrenaline just pumping <laughs> through me but like I get sick as soon as I get home I mean because your body disconnects a little yeah. right so you get it's like called the stretch zone or something like that in psychology where it's like this little graph and it's got three tiers like a circle within a circle within a circle and like the middle is like your comfort zone then the second layer is like your stretch zone the third I'm probably wrong in quoting this but the third is like your fear zone mm-hmm the minute you like step into that stretch zone, your body's just like, I can do this all the time. And you know, like you disconnect. And then the minute you obviously follow into a point where your body and your mind lock in, that's just when it's like, uh, uh, slow the fuck down. Let me just please relax. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure it's really unhealthy, but I I don't know. I mean, you've also conditioned yourself to be on that on the road as well because that's how you you conditioned yourself to keep moving do you take anything to keep you going singer saving grace throat spray or I think there were a few like problems one like we the band was really loud and so I always kind of struggled to to be heard like and to hear myself in the monitors and that was something that was always a, an issue between me, my brother and I. Like I, we were just too loud on stage, and he he kind of refused to turn down. And I don't have that issue anymore. I also think I used to get drunk like before, so, <laughs> okay. which I just I don't even know how I could do that. You know, yeah, I, looking back, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't because. I, and I don't know if it was because I was unhappy or, or I was nervous or what. I I don't know the reason or if I just wasn't paying attention to how much I was, I mean, not, not drunk or like incapacitated or yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I would get drunk. And now it's like, Oh my gosh, I never, I mean, I'll have a drink or two. I like, I have this like very strict sort of like, you know, it's like OCD kind of like amount of alcohol have before, you know, but yeah, it's, um, you know, I don't get drunk on tour it just couldn't I wouldn't be able to funk I wouldn't be able to get up you know it'd just be terrible I mean it's also like this you know it's like they say like you've got to be drunk you've got to be a rock star it's like you live fast when you're young and it's like this go 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 non-stop and so it totally makes sense you were like one of the boys like getting in there I'm sure that like you just wanted to have as much fun as everybody else was and I can't even I don't know what else you were meant to do, really. Like, yeah. I don't blame you one bit for doing any of that. Yeah. And I love that you could look back now and you have that perspective. And the songs, you know, like you'd need to service the songs in a different way now. Like, not to say, like, Eleanor, please don't get drunk before your, right. before your shows because you're allowed to do whatever you want. But I do you feel like the subject and also the band 
has affected the way that you've approached touring because now you are on your own really singing your own material as opposed to living in this you know someone else's world with other people right no I mean I certainly feel like I have a much bigger obligation to I I mean I guess just to myself you know it's just like I, I feel a sense of responsibility that I probably didn't feel before and it's all on me that's good. I mean, it's like I'm owning up to this. I mean, as embarrassing as it sounds, you know, like it took me a really long time to even think of myself as an artist, you know, like it just kind of felt like this thing I was doing. And now I just feel so much more control over what I'm doing, obviously. I mean, it's pretty basic, but. No, I, I, <laughs> don't, I don't find it at all. I think it's not fair for people for anyone to expect your artist to have all their shit together, to know exactly what they're doing. And there's uh, there's something really beautiful about figuring it out as you go along. Mm. And especially with you being able to reflect like this, having a little bit of doubt is good. But where do you then draw your confidence from now? It's a couple of things. I mean, from the years of experience, of course. And I never had a problem with confidence deep down you know like I I always owe it to I know it sounds kind of silly but like being good at sports when I was a kid yes oh that's great yeah for me it's really a similar sort of thing I, I just happened to be lucky and was like really good at sports really coordinated and always like you know picked first for teams and all that sort of stuff and and I, I and I think there's this kind of divide that's very immature I think of like there's people who can be already in into music and then people who are jocks or into sports or whatever and I don't think it they have to be mutually exclusive you know what I mean I just think totally for me performing on stage is very athletic it's this physical thing that that I really attribute to being able to do because I was on team sports as a kid and and thrived in that sort of environment this is really so interesting because everybody has a different story that feeds into why they perform the way that they perform. I just remember the only, I saw this headline years ago, but I remember you, you said something about channeling one of the, those 70s icons. Like, I don't know if it was like Neil Young or uh-huh. it was one of them. And I was just like, that is so fucking cool. Like the fact that, you know, you've chosen this, because I've seen, I'm sure you have as well, many times, Neil Young perform. Yeah. It's like he's completely engaged, but he's not really there. Yeah. Another person who I who I really, I mean, he's a good example too, but like, um, like Joe Strummer from The Clash. Yes. Like, to me, he's kind of the ultimate front man. Because, you know, he was like incredibly intelligent. There was, being in the band was an intellectual exercise in a lot of ways. There's so much behind the music, but then there was also this incredible style, this incredible charisma and energy. He's kind of the ultimate. When you said that, I was thinking there's that line on your new album where you say, I go to ZZ Top and lose my mind. Uh Save me a seat if you can find. Is that what are you talking about? there? Is that something metaphoric? Like I go to that to channel it? It could be, but it was, uh, that was actually some, something someone said to me in a text message, like, I'm going to see ZZ Top tonight. <laughs> and then also said something about, like, I'm losing my mind. Yeah. 
I love that. And I love, I mean, I think that's from the, the same song that we were chatting about earlier from, yeah. from Are, Are We Good? Yeah. And I love even just the titles of some of the tracks as well. A lot of what you do, and obviously you are allowed to correct me because this is just my perception, but you do capture a time and a place. You usually summon some sort of sense of space in a lot of your albums. You know, for your last album, New View, you, as you mentioned earlier, you left Brooklyn, you recorded in a barn. For this one, you left the country and recorded in Greece. But do you feel like you escape because you're used to writing on the road? Like, as you mentioned earlier, it's become more natural for you or that you see escapism as emotionally useful? I see it as emotionally useful, but I didn't actually record or really write in Greece. That was like more of a, an inspiration trip or something, you know, like the uh. way the, the way that like designers go on trips to <laughs> like source fabrics yes. and stuff like that. <laughs> it was it was more like that. And I was playing some shows. I mean, I went with the uh, idea to write while I was there, but it turns out like I can't actually do the hard work unless I am at home. I mean, okay, but, okay. but, but the source always comes from something else, you know, but the act, mm. the actual hard work and the demo making, like I've done it all at the table that I'm sitting at right now, which was my grandmother's dining room table. I mean, it's just wow. like, but I'm, I'm collecting stuff around the globe, you know? I love that you've likened it to fabric. There is so much out there that you can be inspired by and not necessarily wear. Right. You know, like you can take from so many different places and you don't have to like let it seep in and become your new identity. Yeah, for sure. Because you can't, it's not like, oh, she's made this album. It sounds like she was in Greece, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like I would never, I, I just know that that's your, you know, that's where your family come from. Or some of your family. Yeah. So you have that connection. After your experience in traveling around there, how long did it take you to realize, oh, hang on, I feel full. I feel like recharged. I can go home and write. I mean, it was basically as soon as I got back. I had started on a few songs before I left, like, say, November, December. And then I was gone for until the middle of February. And I had the album, like, done in a quotation marks like by the beginning of may i think what i'm just thinking is what kind of value touring an album like this holds in your life right now oh my gosh i mean uh, i don't know how to answer that i mean to, to be honest i'm a little bit scared because i'm putting together a brand new band i don't know like i haven't even rehearsed with all of them yet it's all <laughs> gonna be really fresh luckily one of the guys who's in the band is who like help me finish the album okay right and he also recorded my last album so it will be good to have him along it's all really new looking at the album listening to it and hearing what's going on and it's really funny as well like I love your some oh, of your thanks. lyrics are really and I, maybe they're not meant to be funny I'm not sure what your intention was but I giggled at a lot of points no that's good you're like yeah that's good that's what I that's what I wanted but do you think that writing music like this is that a skill that you've really honed over the years or do you feel like you've just kind of fallen naturally into a really beautiful storyteller mode. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think finally I feel like 
I have my own brand of songwriting. I, I don't know how to characterize it exactly, but I think it was coming into play on the last one, but especially this one, I feel like that that's kind of what I hope that people recognize now is that, oh, not only, okay, this is her fourth album. So she's not, this wasn't just like a lark and she's, you know, this is like something she really cares about and, <laughs> yeah. and is serious about. Oh, and she writes this very particular type of song that I don't, I don't hear anywhere else. I mean, I'd be lying if I said, this is what I've set out to do. And it's taken me mm. this long to figure out how to do it. But this was a hard album for me to, to do. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say like, oh, the songs just came to me. I mean, it wasn't mm. that at all. Like I really, I wrote a lot of them in a different way than I normally write. I wrote a lot of them on a keyboard where I write the melodies on the keyboard and then write the lyrics after the fact, which is something I don't normally do. And I tried to write about a few things that were important to me that weren't just like free association kind of lyrics that I kind of tend towards, you know. If you are covering important things and you feel really close to, you know, your true self how is your live setup going to change now because obviously you're, you you are different and you're putting out new music so that's all the change are you going to have that keyboard in front of you no. are you going to have your band we might have a keyboard but um probably not i really want to do something different i mean that's the thing with going back to the fiery furnaces it's been valuable for me going forward is like we never tried to recreate our albums live. It would have been impossible after <laughs> yeah. the second album, which, and then it became a point of pride. And what that's what we did was made up something completely new for our live sets. So we were a live band and then we were this band that made these albums and that those were like two separate entities. And so for me, I, I've never felt the pressure or need to how am I going to recreate this on stage it's just not something that matters to me I don't think it's very interesting I mean I did do it for the last album because like I said I'd never done it before and I was recording with the band who I was touring with so it made sense to just you know sound the same it was, yeah it would recreate yeah that. it would have been kind of insane to do it any other way but uh for this I mean, I'm still trying to figure out the sound. I kind of, I'm playing with a drummer who I really admire and I've wanted to play with for years, who's amazing. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to tour with him throughout the year or just for this beginning part. Also, I'm playing with a bass player who I've known for over 10 years, who I've always wanted to play with. I'm really excited just to play with this rhythm section because I almost want it to be like, I'm just singing to this like drum and bass machine. <laughs> yeah. And I've never done that before. So It's really exciting. Who is the drummer? Oh, his name is Otto Otto Hauser. And he's just he's mostly does session work, but he's played with tons of different people and again, he's someone I've known for a long time and we've been talking about playing together, but the last time I saw him he was playing with Cass McCombs. He's kind of like a machine, which is not yeah. necessarily a good thing, but it's perfect for this. For what you need. Album. Yeah. And so the last thing that I was kind of thinking about now when you were speaking is if you could kind of travel anywhere through time to any place, is there kind of one band or performer that you would go to see? Kind of a show you wish you were alive and able to have seen, but you couldn't. Oh, gosh. 
So many. Oh my so, god. Well, what what is coming to your head first? Like I wish I could like almost hear your mind. No, I know. Like, well, I mean, the first thing I guess the thing that popped in my head is, and again, it's just because of how I grew up and with my older brother. Yes. Would probably be like the Who in 1971. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like sitting like right up front. That that's the first thing that popped into my head. So I guess I should stick with that. But I mean, I would also love to see like. Otis Redding sing or Van Morrison also like maybe in 1973 or something. I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. I know. I just I the best part of this is that it's like torture because there's no way I could answer that question. So I like put it on to everybody else in my life. I, if I could see like Otis Redding singing in a nightclub, yeah. like that would be... <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely life-changing. Is there anything creatively that you feel you haven't achieved yet and you still want to? I mean, part of me wishes to be really good at an instrument and be able mm. to just play in someone else's band. I know that sounds like really boring, but... It doesn't at all. I think that would be so fun. And I've never gotten to do that. So like not not sing, just Yeah, play. Or, or do some singing, but like... Do some singing. Yeah, if I could like be a rhythm guitar player, yeah. band and sing, but not have it be my band, like that would be... You gotta do this. And, and, get, and get to be like, and in a bigger band, like two are on a tour bus. But it's, I'm not responsible, you know, like I just show up and yes. do my job. Like to me, that would be the ultimate sort of musical fantasy. But I mean, do you ever think that that would ever happen? I mean, I guess it could. You could make it happen. I've got to practice guitar. <laughs> if you see a band, if you meet them, you could just be like, hey, let's workshop this this idea. <laughs> I've got, can I just uh, take the place of one of your guitarists? And, you know, that's not a totally weird request. No, I guess. I guess it's kind of <laughs> that's to be the right band. I wonder who you would, like, I'm just thinking now who would be the best fit. Well, I don't If you think of it, then <laughs> I'll tell you. Cut my agent or something. <laughs> this Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. Consequence Podcast Network.